Hello, I'm Bob Gilmore. Welcome to Tentative Affinities, my series of audio documentaries about composers at work in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Today, I'll be talking about the music of the French composer François Bernard Mach. <laughs> That was the opening of Corwar for harpsichord and tape by François Bernard Masch, composed in 1972 and performed on that Erato disc by the Polish-born harpsichordist Elizabeth Chojnacka, for whom it was written. It's an extraordinary piece of music. Masch bypasses totally the Renaissance and Baroque approach to the harpsichord and turns it instead into something violent, metallic and percussive, and he complements the instrument with an incredible collection of sounds on tape. At the very beginning of the piece, you heard the voice of a native speaker of Nosa, one of the click languages of South Africa, with its wonderful percussive phoneme that is technically neither a vowel nor a consonant. The text, she recites, is a nationalistic anti-apartheid poem, though it's fair to say that very few of the listeners to Korwar over the years would really have been able to tell that. Mash intersperses her voice with a recording of a shama, a sort of magpie, which makes percussive chirps. Together with the harpsichord staccato clusters and chords played with the strings muted, this creates a texture in which it becomes at times quite tricky to tell the highly different sound sources apart. The tape later segues abruptly into the sound of frogs, then of starlings, which join the high register of the harpsichord in a bizarre sort of counterpoint. All of these recordings are left in their natural state, without any sort of processing. Korwar is delightful as an oral experience, but we may wonder what sort of logic governed Masha's choice of sounds as he made the piece. Many of the sounds are linked by a network of family resemblances, with certain distinctive features that they share and others that enable us to tell them apart. More generally, 
Marsh has proposed the concept of phonography, a word related to the term photography, although now applied to sounds, which he has described as, quote, the aptitude of raw sounds to compose the sequences of an oral cinema, but a cinema based on free association, unquote. Listening to Marsh's music, I often have the sense of a sort of narrative unfolding in sound, but a narrative more like the kind that happens in dreams, with strange and unreal connections, where objects get confused with and blend into one another. Here's a passage from another work, Marae, for percussion, ensemble and tape, in which the tape is again a montage of sound elements in their untreated state, this time including sounds of wind, waves, the ebb and flow of the tide, and the crackling of fire. The rhythmic profile of the recorded sounds is sufficiently clear for Marsh to be able to fuse them effectively with the sounds of the unpitched percussion ensemble, which includes instruments like nakers, small drums of Arabic origin, bull roarers, and the crumpling of paper, as well as more conventional instruments like cymbals. The recordings are not a background soundscape to the live sounds, but are an integral part of the musical material. That was an extract from Marae from 1974 by François Bernard Mach, played by Les Percussions de Strasbourg on an accord CD of Mach's percussion works. In pieces like this, Mach says, unprocessed tape sounds, quote, are coloured by instrumental writing that is essentially a transcription in strict synchronism with its model. The conventional boundary between nature and culture thereby loses much of its importance and sometimes even disappears completely. Unquote. In this program, I want to explore this aspect of Marsh's work, together with others of his concerns, concerns that make him, in my opinion, one of the most original as well as the most underplayed composers of his brilliant generation. François Bernard Marsh was born in Clermont-Ferrand, in the Auvergne region of France's Massif Central. His great-grandfather was a clogmaker who became a luthier, Marsh still possesses a viola made by his great-grandfather more than a hundred years ago. His grandfather was a violinist and a composer who studied at the same time as Debussy at the Paris Conservatoire. 
His father was a cellist and also a composer who, in the early 1930s, conducted an amateur orchestra in Clermont-Ferrand. He married one of the violinists in his orchestra who, in 1935, bore him a son. Marsh himself began to play the piano at the age of five or six. Growing up in wartime France, with a curfew in operation, the absence of cinema, and with public cultural activities greatly restricted, the Marsh family home became a place where music-making often continued from morning till night. One of the important non-musical events of Marsh's later teenage years was a trip to Greece, a country he fell immediately in love with. Marsh still owns a house there, designed for him by his close friend Yanis Zanakis. He was shocked on first visiting Athens to find that what he had imagined to be a sort of museum was in fact full of life, and that the connection between ancient and modern Greek was stronger than he had imagined. Around that time, he had his first encounter with truly modern music, hearing a radio broadcast of the premiere of Edgar Varese's Désert. He came upon the broadcast by chance and found it quite beautiful, believing that the shouts and cries from the disgruntled public were an integral part of the score. The first concerts of contemporary music he attended, shortly after his arrival in Paris, were those of the Domaine Musical, where he heard, amongst other things, the premiere of Pierre Boulez's Le Marteau Sans Maître. This was followed a little later by hearing, in a German radio broadcast, Zanakis's Pithopracta. Marsh later remarked, I was impressed by Varese, Messian, by electroacoustic sounds, but it was the encounter with Zanakis that was decisive for me. Hearing Zanakis's early tape work, Diomorphoses, Marsh recalls saying to a colleague that it was exactly the kind of music he wanted to make himself. In 1958, he joined the GRM, the Groupe de Recherche Musicale, a new collective created by the composer Pierre Schaeffer. Marsh recalls that at that time, the official avant-garde, as represented by Boulez, considered musique concrète to be unimportant, and that he himself chose to work with Schaeffer because he craved the sort of freedom, imagination and fantasy that the electronic studio promised. That same year, he was admitted to Messian's class at the Conservatoire, which was a class in analysis. Messian at that time didn't teach composition. These classes introduced him to Balinese music, Tibetan music, as well as to a range of Western music previously unknown to him. At the same time, alongside his music studies, he also managed to obtain a diploma in Greek archaeology. Following two years of compulsory military service in Algeria, Marsh returned to Paris, where, in the autumn of 1962, he was briefly placed in charge of the Groupe de Recherche Musicale, before a disagreement with Pierre Schaeffer led to a parting of the ways. The disagreement was both intellectual and aesthetic. Marsh was less than enthusiastic about Schaeffer's proposed method of solfège, as later outlined in his famous book Traité des Objets Musicaux. More importantly, Marsh did not share Schaeffer's insistence that recorded sounds must somehow be manipulated and divested of their function as sound signals before they could be used as musical material. Marsh's view was, quote, If I adopt sounds, it's that I can already hear their music. The need to distort a sound, which Schaeffer often advised, seemed to me completely useless, even harmful. The first work in Marsh's catalogue to integrate recorded sounds with live instruments was Rituel d'Oubli, Ritual of Forgetting, for winds, brass, percussion and tape, written in 1968. It marks the first extended use of birdsong as a model in his work, a practice he had hitherto avoided because of its inevitable associations with Messian. In this extract, you'll hear sounds from a swimming pool, the noises of street scuffles, some recorded during his military service in Algeria, wind sounds, and, to conclude, the sound of Salknam, an almost extinct language from Terre du Feu at the extreme tip of South America. Beginning with Rituel d'Oubli, Marsh says, I integrated raw sounds and musical composition, 
not as the collision of two worlds, but as the integration or hybridization possible between what is given by nature and what is created by man. I did it intuitively, like the collectors around 1620, who placed their stuffed crocodile next to a Rembrandt, because both showed the richness of the world. Here's the ending of Rituel Dubli.
Those were the final minutes of Rituel d'Oubli by François Bernard Mache from a live recording by Radio France made at their Perspective du XXe siècle festival in 1976. Mache's remark about his intuitive way of working, placing sounds next to one another in the manner of Renaissance collectors, shows him to be a very different type of composer from those who, after World War II, looked increasingly to scientific models, especially mathematical ones, to organise their music. This idea, and many others, found verbal expression in Masch's book Music, Myth and Nature, an elaboration of material in the doctoral thesis he completed at the Université de Paris in 1980. The ideas expressed in the book show a divergence in thought with his friend and thesis advisor, Zinakis, who, Marsh recalls, was extremely perturbed by them. Although critical of serial music, Zanakis still adhered nonetheless to a similar principle, believing that music is made from profound laws that can be described mathematically. He could therefore not share Marsh's conviction that there was a natural dimension to music beyond conscious control. Marsh comments that, quote, The connection I have with nature as a model can be seen to have a certain heritage, perhaps not quite alchemical, but at least baroque, in the sense of an aesthetic that was dominant between about 1580 and 1640, the shipwreck of the Renaissance. He further remarks that the interest of that era is precisely the deliberate confusion between art objects and real objects, which you see incarnate in the phenomenon of the cabinet of curiosities, which has a bad name today, being seen as a naive primitive form of the museum, a disorganized form of thought. But that's not the case. It is built on a different sort of organization, based on symbolic criteria rather than those of current museology. Unquote. The metaphor of the cabinet of curiosities is a possible way of thinking of the materials used in many of Marsh's compositions, including those I've played until now, and the one I want to play next, Cassandra. The cabinet of curiosities originally meant a whole room rather than a piece of furniture. It was a collection of wonders with an assortment of objects that belong to what today are considered discrete categories, although with overlaps. Natural history, archaeology, works of art, religious relics, antiquities, automata. The cabinets were full of fake mythical creatures, or parts thereof, exotic substances such as amber, precious stones, and much else. In Marsh's case, the contents of his cabinets are of course sonic in nature, but some of the sounds may be considered just as exotic as the shells and gemstones of the 17th century cabinets. But it's the nature of their juxtaposition that's interesting. I'll play now two extracts from Cassandra for Ensemble and Tape, completed in 1977, which I think is one of his finest works. It won the Prix Italia for Best Radiophonic Work that same year, so clearly I'm not the only one. You may remember Marsh's comment I quoted earlier that his sound composed the sequences of an oral cinema, but a cinema based on free association. The beginning of Cassandra demonstrates this clearly. It's though our ear is operating like a movie camera, travelling around a landscape. But, as so often in film, there's a certain amount of trickery going on. The piece begins with a recording of a peal of thunder, a storm recorded in Ile de France, with the sound of heavy rain in its wake. 
A second peal soon follows, after which the sound of a busy stream, recorded in Brittany, emerges out of the sound of the rain. A third peal of thunder, longer this time, leads to sounds of frogs and very high-pitched insects, recorded in Java. The sound of the stream fades out just before the first entrance of the instrumental ensemble, which takes its cue from the pitches produced by the insects, somewhere between a very high D and an E-flat, and Mash has the oboe and cor anglais double Ds, an octave and two octaves lower. That was the beginning of Cassandra by François Bernard Mache. Now I want to play a longer sequence from later in the work, which demonstrates the Cabinet of Curiosities idea rather well. Here we hear a merger of sound images from various sources. First, two Indian Chennais with their raucous timbre. Then, an ensemble passage on a rising chordal glissando, followed by the recorded sound of two macrunas, Moroccan clarinet-type instruments playing very rapid scale passages. Mixed into their manic interplay is what is surely the most striking instrument-insect combination in all of music, what Marsh describes as the formal analogy between the nasal twang of reeds and the buzzing of bees. The macrunas stop as suddenly as they began, and we're left with the noisy buzzing insects, at times sounding as though they're bashing against the microphone, or, even worse, about to break through the speakers and enter the room. They are then joined by a quiet, regular movement on clarinet and bass clarinet, overlaid with recordings of two baritone rackets, the Renaissance double reed instrument, and later by two bass crumb horns. After a while, only the crumb horns remain, and they're joined by a tape of two male voices speaking different languages, one in the Ethiopian Amharic language and the other in Tibetan. Musically, this results in the superimposition of different tempi, creating a dizzying rhythm, rather like people running more or less alongside one another, not quite in sync.
That was the astonishing music of Cassandra by François-Bernard Mach, performed by the Ensemble du Nouvel Orchestre Philharmonique, conducted by Boris de Vinogradov, on a Musidisc portrait CD of Mach's music. The interest in natural languages, as heard there and in several of the other extracts I've played, is a constant in Mach's output. In general, it takes the form of a fascination with relatively obscure languages, obscure from a Western European point of view, that is, and also with nearly extinct or dead languages. In the majority of his works, these language segments are present as recordings, rather than being spoken live. Moreover, Marsh admits that for many years he found it impossible to think about setting a text to music, as a song composer would. This had changed by the end of the 1980s, thanks to his encounter with the French ensemble Accroche Note and its brilliant soprano Françoise Coublet. In 1983, Marsh had been appointed Professor of Musicology at the Université de Strasbourg II, where he remained for some ten years, but his association with the Strasbourg-based Accroche Not, happily, has continued from that time to this. One of the several works he composed for them is a song cycle, Kengir, written in 1991 for soprano and sampling keyboard. It's a setting of love poems in a dead language, Sumerian the language of the ancient civilization of Sumer in southern Mesopotamia, modern-day southern Iraq. The piece's title, Kengir, is what the Sumerians called themselves in their language, which was probably the first ever to be written. Here's the fourth song of the cycle, Kubatum, which uses a five-tone mode in equal steps, similar to the Indonesian mode Slendro, but used very differently. In Kengir, you might say that Marsh is forging a kind of imaginary archaeology, with music that's doubtless rather different to anything the Sumerians would have known, but that nonetheless transports us to a very beautiful, unknown world. Mm-hmm. 
of Kubatum, the fourth song from Kengia by François Bernard Mach, performed by two members of Ensemble Accroche Note, Françoise Kublet, soprano, and Michel Renoul, sampling keyboard. In Strasbourg, Mach taught classes in the application of the new computer technology to music, persuading the university to buy a UPIC machine, a sort of computer drawing system devised by Xenakis that allowed the shapes of waveforms and volume envelopes to be drawn on a tablet and thence to be mapped to musical parameters. At the same time, Marsh frequently turned to the sampling keyboard as a more versatile replacement for the medium of reel-to-reel tape, which he had used at the outset of his career. Sampling keyboards, he remarked, give back to performers the freedom of tempo that magnetic tape deprived them of. Perhaps the most ambitious use he's made of these instruments is in L'Estuaire du Temps, the Estuary of Time, a sort of concerto for sampling keyboard and orchestra from 1993. He has described the piece as, quote, the meeting of a narrative form, the course of a river, with the immutable depths of the ocean. He is part of the first of its three linked movements. Beginning with the sounds of surf breaking, the music presents in a new way sounds familiar from Marsh's sonic vocabulary, the sounds of wind, of rare instruments, and of human languages, here used sometimes in a kind of repeated stammering, not a million miles away from the similar technique used in hip-hop.
That was part of L'Estuaire du Temps by François Bernard Mach, performed by Michael Levinas on sampling keyboard with the Orchestre Philharmonique de Radio France, conducted by Elgar Haworth. That's on the French label Densité 21, Density 21. To end with, I'd like to play a more recent work of Mach, one that again exemplifies his deep interest in Greek mythology. Indeed, he taught both Greek and Latin for many years as a younger man, even receiving an honorary doctorate from the University of Athens. Perseus, for soprano, harpsichord, percussion and strings, is another work composed for the remarkable voice of Françoise Kublet in 2007. It sets to music an ancient Greek poem by Simonides of Chios that treats with what Marsh says is one of his favourite myths. Danae, daughter of King Acrisius of Argos and his wife Queen Eurydice, is thrown into the sea in a wooden chest accompanied by her newborn son, Perseus. She sings a berceuse. The sea is calmed by Poseidon, and at the request of Zeus, Perseus's father, the pair survive. Thank you for listening to Tentative Affinities. We end this program with a live performance from 2009 by soprano Françoise Kublet and the ensemble La Folia of the premiere of Perseus by François Bernard Mach.